A warm servus from Munich and welcome everyone to the Hightech Ventures podcast. Our mission at Hightech Ventures is to help turn science into a triple P dividend. After decades of focus on purely digital innovations, the wave of science-backed ventures is inevitably coming. And in order to tackle many of the world's most pressing challenges, these high-tech innovations are also highly needed. The Hightech Ventures podcast gives you the inside look at what it takes to create successful science-backed ventures. We truly want to understand the entire process from lab to IPO and hone in on the people involved, entrepreneurs, tech transfer specialists, scientists or investors, most of them working backstage relentlessly. We will talk to those getting their hands dirty, those who don't shy away from the complexity, but see the opportunity to create lasting impact based on the newest advances in science and technology. My name is Thorsten Lambertus and I'm pleased to be your host for this episode today. Hello Luke, welcome to the show, how are you? Thank you Thorsten, I'm great, how are you? I'm fine and I'm looking forward to our chat today. So first of all, where are you right now? I'm in Shanghai, I'm in the center, center, center of Shanghai. So uh, right next to Jing'an Temple. Um, which is the the place where uh, you can still find many expats in China. Okay, so I've never been to Shanghai, actually. So tell me about the city and uh, how did you end up there? Yeah, so I think Shanghai, is, uh, you can see it a bit like uh, maybe the New York of Asia or of, of, of China. It's, uh, it's very vibrant. It's oftentimes much more modern than people think when they have this maybe outside picture of China. Um, there's lots of you know nice bars big companies small companies lots of things happening it's really hustling and bustling um and i ended up here about three and a half years ago um so in uh, 2017 uh, i got the opportunity to uh i was asked by a dutch company a dutch accelerator to help them expand to china um so they asked me i think uh, in may and two weeks later i was on the plane and uh, never came back Walk us through your career uh, and why you are motivated and why you ended up in building deep tech companies, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, um, I think maybe it starts. I remember when I was seventeen or eighteen, I was on a on a birthday party with uh, with some of my best friends, and we started having conversation after a couple beers um, and uh, brainstorming about different ideas. And then, for some reason, in that conversation, I still remember it very well. It struck me that as a, a young person, you just have the, the opportunity to just start something out of nothing, create something. Um, and we got so excited by the idea that we could just do that, that we had that freedom to just get up the next morning, try to start a company, see what happened. And, and that's how I started on the entrepreneurial path. So out of that, that uh, uh, conversation over a few beers uh, together with one of my best friends, we started the first company at the time still in the Netherlands. It totally, totally, totally failed. Uh, we made all the mistakes that you can make. So uh, we had nine co-founders. We had no business model. Um, I remember we were given at some moment a free co-work, a free office at a co-working space, and we thought that was extremely important because when you have an office, you are a real company. Um, and I can go on and on and on. So so uh, we did that for one and a half year, and then we we stopped it. Um, and of course, uh, zero success, but a lot of learnings. Um, but that set me off on a path of, of entrepreneurship. So then while I was studying, I started a second company, educational company. Uh, that went better. It was also more easy because it was a service company. Um, so we grew that to about 35 people and we sold it. Uh, and then I started a tech company again, which didn't work out. I had some, some uh, let's say, issues there with, uh, with the, the founders I was working with. Uh, in this case, I was trying to commercialize technology from a research institute. And we couldn't see eye to eye, so we had to to stop that venture. Um, so that's my entrepreneurial journey, uh, academic background. I have a combination of business, innovation, technology backgrounds. So also academically, I'm, I've been in this space. Um, and after those entrepreneurial journeys, for a very short time, I worked at Ernst Young. Uh, they asked me to help them set up a program to create internal spin-outs. So fintech companies uh, to try to basically disrupt themselves. So I did that for one and a half year. But I soon learned that um, working for a big organization um, is impossible for me because uh, I will get fired at some moment in time, um, which almost happened a few times. And then uh, um, I came to China to um, to help build an accelerator here called Xnode. And that's what I've been doing over the last three and a half years. 
Yeah, wonderful. So now you're running Xnode. Tell us a little bit of how this program works, um, what you're actually doing with it, and uh, what's your overall vision? Where do we want to get with this? So Xnode is uh, the, the kind of mission or vision of Xnode is we are trying to be a Chinese privately owned global platform for innovation. Um, so uh, in China, of course, the government is trying to push so hard for innovation technology. Uh, um, and there's tens of thousands of incubators and accelerators out there. Uh, but what many people might not know, especially when you haven't lived in China for a long time, 99% of those incubators and accelerators are actually state-owned companies. Uh, oftentimes, they are actually real estate companies surviving on subsidies. Um, I'm not so saying that's necessarily anything wrong with that. It's just a different business model. Uh, China works differently than the, than the rest of the world. So we are actually one of the few privately-owned accelerators in China. Um, and our mission is to to try to be a platform, so connect lots of different organizations in the area of innovation, um, but also definitely connect China with the rest of the world. Um, and if you translate that back into the different businesses that we have, so we still have a small co-working space, um, uh, but it's 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 not uh, the, the the main core of the business. Uh, so we have uh, two two co-working spaces in Shanghai that we still run. Then we have a large business on corporate innovation, so we work with more than 50 mostly multinationals, help them to invest in companies, help them to create spin-outs, uh, all of that. Then we run a, a business called Launch China, where we help foreign scale-ups coming into the Chinese market. So companies with one, more than 1 million US dollar in revenue, B2B, with a differentiating tech uh, proposition, we help them come into China. And then fourth, we do something called Venture Building, uh, where we commercialize technology, uh, we bring together technology and founders, and then we um, uh, we invest in those companies and we help them to to grow. So those four businesses, and we do that right now with offices in Shanghai, Shenzhen, and Singapore. Okay, so um, obviously the last part interests me at least the most, uh, the venture building part. So when you compare venture building and collaboration with research organization, Europe, US, or at least the Western world uh, in general, uh, with what you're doing right now in China, where, where are differences that you're seeing? Okay, so maybe first, uh, generally speaking, and I'm, I'm sure you will agree with this, Thorsten, there's been this shift in our industry where five years ago, the holy grail was to start an accelerator. And now the holy grail is to start doing venture building, right? Um, uh, if you ask me, maybe if we backtrack a little bit, the whole accelerator model, of course, came originally from the US with uh, the, the prime example being Y Combinator being very successful with the model where they invest in existing companies, 2 to 8% equity. Um, and and uh, of course, you have cases like Airbnb and many others, Coinbase recently, uh, that have uh, given them a great ROI. Um, I would say what happened there is uh, way too many accelerators were started all over the world, um, oftentimes with the wrong uh, commercialization model behind. Um, and probably 99% of all accelerators, incubators in the world have failed. If you look at the uh, the actual ROI that they have been able to generate. Um, of course, one of the reasons why Y Combinator, in my view, was successful is there's a, a bit of a network effect there, right? They uh, Originally, they were able to attract good quality founders because San Francisco had a concentration of high quality founders, and then they started having success, and then success attracted success, and therefore, they were, a, they were able to maintain that. Uh, but many accelerators were not. And therefore, um, I think that was one of the reasons why there has been this shift towards venture building, where instead of uh, uh, investing in existing companies, um, many innovation organizations are trying to create companies from scratch. Uh, the upside of that is that you are there uh, before the company is created, which means typically the equity percentage that you take as a venture builder is higher. Uh, of course, the downside is you take much more risk um, because there is no there is no team yet. There is often no business. There's no traction. There's no revenue. There's no product. So the risk is also much higher. So uh, regarding whether or not venture building will be successful, I would say the jury is still out there. Uh, we don't know that yet. Uh, for sure, uh, many organizations that have, have moved towards venture building have actually increased their risk rather than decreased their risk. So uh, I'm quite skeptical. And I also think many venture builders will eventually fail. Um, so that's maybe as a, a little prelude. And then uh, differences across the world. Um, so uh, maybe you start with uh, Europe versus China. So in China, this whole venture building model is extremely new. Um, as far as I know, we are the only one or, or maybe there's one more that's doing this in China. 
so you so you still see in China that uh, the even the incubator accelerator model there's almost no Y combinator like incubator or accelerator. So uh, uh, as I mentioned, all accelerators here are co-working spaces that offer space. Uh, that's it. No program, no structure, no mentoring, no real methodology. Uh, oftentimes also... But they call themselves accelerators? They do. Yeah. And they can also, uh, oftentimes they can qualify for uh, lots of subsidies based on the fact that they have uh, a, a, a legal status where you can be called an accelerator. Um This also has to do uh, with, uh, just as a side note, with the attitude of Chinese entrepreneurs who do not like methodology process. They only like results. Um, extremely pragmatic. Um, so I would also say that the <coughs> traditional accelerator model, I don't think it will work in China. Um, so so uh, in terms of venture building, um, we are trying this right now, but we're not doing this in China. We're doing this actually in Singapore. Um, The reason why we are not doing this yet in China is, number one, uh, working with research institutes here is very complicated. Why is that the case? Um, they have an incentive to commercialize, but these are very big, bureaucratic, again, uh, um, government-backed institutions. Uh, and there's such a big gap between the private sector and the, the government side in China that it's, it's so difficult to, to bridge this gap. Um, that's one reason. Second reason... Um, The, the really good technologies in China, you will have to go to tier one universities like um, uh, Tsinghua, for example. Um, and the people that, that study there, uh, I don't think they, they think they need a venture builder. If you come from Tsinghua and you would commercialize technology, you can relatively easily go to a, a tier one VC and, and, and raise money yourself at very high valuations. So the, the question is whether or not a venture building structure really adds value. So so uh, I'm not so positive about the venture building model in China. Yeah, but but do you see that this model works in China, that the VC directly collaborates with the research organization, the researchers, to get the IP out of the labs and into new ventures? Are there success cases that show, well, this is actually working? Very few. So the, the cases that you see are um, entrepreneurial professors um, at these tier one universities that want to create a company and then they will raise investment for that company. And there you've seen some successes, but not in a structured fashion. Um, the, the, the boundary conditions are not in place to, to do real commercialization. So the, oftentimes the researchers have a big say on what happens with the technology. Um, the uh, university doesn't, doesn't really control that well. Universities are too slow to make decisions. Uh, universities will have an incentive to work maybe with government-backed accelerators rather than private ones, but government-backed accelerators don't always understand how to commercialize something yeah, because, of course, ultimately, that's more a private endeavor, so to speak. It's more entrepreneurial business endeavor. So, so that's why um, structurally, I think that the conditions are not yet in place to do this properly in China. Understood. And so I'm also curious whether the typical TTO model does exist in China as well. And if it works the same way as we know it from Europe or the US, at least uh, what, what we are seeing in Europe, that there's many TTOs trying to build up their own venture building incubation activities in order to work on this intersection between the startup ecosystem and their research organization. Uh, do you see that happen in China as well? Yeah, so TTOs do exist. Uh, in fact, uh, so... Uh, as I said before, I don't think venture building will work in China. That doesn't mean we, we shouldn't try. So we are trying to do something uh, actually with Xinhua here in, in China. Uh, we're speaking with our TTO and we're trying to see, can we take some of their technologies and see if we could do try to at least create some venture out of it. Um, so the TTOs exist, yes. TTOs also have, uh, many universities here do have their own in-house incubator. Um, but again, because the uh these university organizations are so much uh, driven by government um the nature of the tto as well as the incubator will be maybe much more educational uh, rather than building business um and that is still the case and and um i don't see that change soon Okay, so you said uh, you're piloting your venture building activities in Singapore. Um, let's double click on that. How does it actually work? Uh, are there any first successes? Um, what are your key learnings uh, from piloting it there? Yeah, 
So uh, the reason why we we decided to pilot this in Singapore is because we think at least Singapore's Singapore's very interesting. They, they have a lot of high quality uh, research, both at university level as well as the research institute level. Government also there is really pushing Singapore to be a an innovation hub or a deep tech hub or whatever you want to call it. So also in that sense, you have the the wind in your sails, uh, so to speak. Um, the ecosystem is small enough. Uh, allowing for relatively quick testing. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, the market is not big enough to really build a big company. Uh, so for us, it's perfect because we can uh, kind of create the seed there. And then hopefully in case uh, that goes well and we get the venture up to a certain level of maturity, we can then uh, bring it, for example, to China because China is hungry for deep tech ventures. Um, so that's the rationale behind so what have we done there? We've created something called Singapore Deep Tech Alliance, uh, launched a couple of months ago, um, which is uh, essentially a structure. And that's also maybe a little bit different from other venture builders, a structure where um, we have an alliance where uh, research institutes, corporates, government are a member of this alliance, alliance sorry, and they need to um, contribute uh, to the structure, either with cash, either with in-kind, uh, but something material that we measure. Um, so we bring together anywhere between five to 10 Alliance members. They will all, all contribute to the structure. And then we, Xnote, we are the operator. So we operate the program that then creates the ventures. Uh, and the Alliance member, of course, depending on their contribution, they will then be shareholder indirectly in those ventures. Uh, so we're not operating a venture builder like a VC. We're offer, operating it as an ecosystem where we're trying to uh, uh, basically bring together uh, the interest, uh, the vested interest of uh, private and public parties um, to create those ventures. And why are we doing that? Because uh, creating deep tech ventures is extremely, extremely, extreme. it's probably the most risky thing you can do, right? You need much more capital. Uh, technology risk is extremely high. Uh, it's difficult to find the right founders. Uh, it takes much more time to come to any type of exit. Therefore, VCs often are not interested. It's If you want to do something painful, start a deep tech venture. It's it's horrible. Um, so what, you need, what we are at least trying to do is minimize risk to the extent that we can. And we have found, uh, because we set up a similar structure before in Europe called the Eindhoven Startup Alliance. And I think, Torsten, you're familiar with that. Yes. Um, we, we have found that if we... The best way to reduce risk is by bring, bringing together uh, private and public parties that can really contribute um, capital, but also resources. Um, and so, so, for example, we're trying to bring on board Dell in our Singapore Deep Tech Alliance. Uh, if we're creating a semiconductor-related company, hopefully Dell will be able to support on the technology side. Uh, will be able to give us access to certain customers, will be able to maybe be a launching customer for us. So by bringing together those type of parties, we hope that it will be a little bit easier uh, to create these ventures or at least to de-risk them and also, um, uh, therefore, for us, of course, create a higher return on investment. Yeah, so so I know what you're doing in the Netherlands. I think this is really a, a very good approach for deep tech venturing, and you're doing now the same and piloting it in Singapore. Let's let's deep dive into that because I'm really interested. How do you select technologies? How do you build the teams around those those technologies? Uh, what do you do with them? What are the first milestones they need to reach when you're working with them? The overall program structure. So so tell us more about this. Yeah. Okay. So uh, for the technologies. Um... So, so maybe first what we've done in Europe, but there we're already doing this for a couple of years. Uh, we have long-term uh, agreements with with a bunch of different research institutes and we continuously scout their technologies. And then we have a whole technology team, including a CTO and, and a couple of other people that go out and do an assessment. So we have our own assessment tools. We look at technology readiness level, defensibility of the IP, uh, how many times better potentially is the technology, what are the areas of application. We also involve Alliance members to help us do that um, technology selection. Eh? So uh, if it's a medtech technology, we will ask Philips to take a look and, and uh, provide us with input on whether or not they think this is something that could work in the market. So that's 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 a, a very good setup. Uh, in Singapore, because we're just starting, we're using a similar approach, but we don't have such a uh, extensive way of doing it yet. We don't have those resources yet at our disposal. So what we have done is... Uh, we've built, we've signed up a couple of research institutes to be our partner, most notably ASTAR, uh, I think quite well known, uh, as well as NHIC. 
the National Health Institute. Um, and with them, they are giving us access to their portfolio of technologies that have uh, a, a TRL, uh, let's say six, roughly five, six, seven, somewhere in, the, in that area. Uh, and then we have a team of technologies that will help us to, to do this assessment. Uh, and then based on this assessment out of the, let's say, if we look at 20 technologies, we might pick three or four uh, that we actually want to put into the program. Um, and uh, at that moment in time, we only look at the technology. And one of the things that we always make clear to the research institute is that um, we need to have the right to commercialize technology without the involvement of the researcher. Um, we need to have the right to look at different application areas. So we need to have that freedom to experiment, both in terms of team as well as in terms of market. If that's not possible, we, we will not take the technology uh, for, I think, obvious reasons. Um, so, so that's that's. What else do you need as a commitment from the research organization? Do they need to put their own money into more R&D? Um, is there necessarily, necessarily free time of the researchers to support you? What kind of commitment do you need? Yeah, what we do is we, we, we sign an umbrella agreement with the Research Institute, which stipulates that doing the program, so in our case, our venture building program is nine months. Um, during the program, we need to have the right to experiment. We need to have the right to, uh, 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 let's say, uh, and look under the hood and understand the core tech that has been, that has been developed. Um, and we already uh, agree, at least on the model for commercialization, not on the specific percentages, but on the, on the model. Why do we do that? Because we, if we then decide that we actually create this venture, we want to minimize friction. Uh, and we don't want the founders to having to do that negotiation with the research institute. So all of that already is stipulated in this framework agreement, including a upper and lower bound for the way we do the commercialization. So upper and lower bound for potential equity participation of the research institute, upper and lower bound for potential licensing uh, um, uh, agreement. Uh, all of that is in there. Uh, and then uh, once we actually create the company, which normally happens after six months, roughly, that's when we will actually then no negotiate on the specifics. Um, so we need that as well as a commitment. And regarding the researcher, um, we are asking the researcher to spend time with the founding team because there's a, a knowledge transfer that needs to take place. So that's what we ask. Um, and we also invite the researcher to apply to our program as a founder. But that's a completely separate track. Uh, and, and those are judged independently. So it's possible that we uptake a technology, but we don't uh, uptake the, 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 the researcher as a founder. Okay, understood. So now we have a technology and maybe a researcher or also a research organization supporting that technology. Uh, you have umbrella conditions set. Now you need a team and you need to find the problem um, where the technology is a solution for, hopefully. So how do you go about that? Yeah, so maybe first on the team. So we uh, we run our own recruitment campaign. Of course, we use our own channel. We use external channels to try to find founders. We have a different selection track as well for different profiles. Uh, so different for CTO, CEO, CMO. Uh, the way it works is we have um, a couple of rounds of interviews. Some of them are on personality. Some of them are, are, are on skill set. So for example, for CTO, we have a process which is maybe similar to a tech giant where people actually have to solve some puzzles and they have to uh, demonstrate certain programming skills in case it's software, etc. cetera. Uh, then a founder gets an offer letter and then they are selected uh, or admitted into the program. So that's how the, the founder selection process works. We try to... Uh, select maybe 10% of the applicants. Um, that's on the, the founder selection part. Uh, then once we have the program, uh, so the program is nine months and it's it's comprised of three phases. Uh, each phase is three months. The first three months are about forming the team. Uh, so because of course, when we start, the different founders might have uh, different uh, preferences for different technologies. So everyone has the, the possibility to uptake a technology uh, so it's also possible that two teams are working at the same time on the same technology. That, that's okay. They can compete with each other. Not a problem. Um, so then they will have to do the, 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 the basic things like assessing the te te technology, understand the application areas, look, try to at least devise first business model, start having, uh, um, doing customer validation, start building a first, not prototype, but let's call it MVP, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then after three months, for us, at least the most important thing that we will do is we will assess the teams. Uh, and also maybe reshuffle them and, and kick a bunch of people out uh, because that's just the way the process works. Um, so that's for the first three months. And then after after that, 
uh, things will become a little bit more intense. So ideally, then teams are formed and we have confidence in the in the founders and their dynamics uh, within with amongst themselves. Um, and then it's we really we try to at least establish uh, a baseline for this is the application that we're going after. This is the market. This is the the prototype that we want to build. Uh, and then it's uh, of course a combination of uh, as much as possible interaction with the market, as, pa- as much as possible trying to build a prototype um, and, and, and trying to get close to at least some type of validation, um, which of course is difficult um, because it will take lots of time to build an actual product um, and getting towards actual commercial traction before you can uh, substantiate certain claims that you might have around 10x improvement or whatever it might be. It, it's it's simply very difficult. So um, yeah. Anyway, we try to do that in conjunction, and then towards the end of the program, we we uh, are getting ventures ready for seed investment, which for deep tech means founding team in place, a business model in place, uh, first prototype at least 80% realized, um, some early indicators that customers are interested. Uh, but not yet traction, not yet full product. Uh, and if people say they can achieve that in three or six months with deep tech, they're lying. It's impossible. Yeah, that's very true. So before we go into that topic, because we are both very skeptical about many of the methodologies and standard programs that are applied to to deep tech. So once you do the seed round, what is a typical deal structure that you would prefer or that you're seeing that is working in China? Yeah. So uh, we have also that we it's a bit different per geography. So f- the way we do this in Europe, uh, the our structure is uh, so we invest small amounts of capital during the program, and then at program exit, so after nine months uh, in Europe, Hydric uh, Excel takes twenty percent equity uh, in in the business, sixty percent is reserved for the founders, um, and then twenty percent for the seed investor that comes in. And then the the 20% of high-tech cells also protected with an anti-dilution up until a certain valuation. So that's in Europe, where, of course, capital is much much more difficult to come by. That's how we do it in Europe. Then um, in uh, China, we don't do venture building, right? And then in in Singapore, we take 10% instead of 20. That has also to do with local competitive landscape. There's other venture builders out there. We need to make sure we attract the right founders. So we had to change a little bit the model there. Uh, also, the amount of money that we invest is slightly different. So it's it's a bit different there. Okay, makes a lot of sense. So now you already touched upon the term MVP. Uh, this is definitely stems from the Lean Startup methodology. And I know that you have a good story about MVPs and how this concept works uh, in deep tech. Um, could, could you tell the story of the team that you tried to support where you felt like this MVP kind of logic doesn't work here? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe first uh, a few sentences. Of course, the whole MVP Lean Startup, this comes from Silicon Valley, comes from Eric Ries. Actually, it comes from B2C. Right? Initially, he was starting kind of like a a gaming or a community type business where you can very quickly build an, an, an online uh, landing page and then you can test need with customers. That, that's where originally this comes from. And what I think happened over time, this became the holy grail of innovation, almost irregardless of industry, irregardless of context, irregardless of geography, irregardless of many different variables. Uh, and uh, I, for a long time, I've been a big advocate of this lean startup thing. I still think it works, but not everywhere. Uh, and uh, for B2B deep tech, uh, I don't think it works at all. Why is that the case? Yeah, so case in point, uh, uh, I think indeed I told you in a previous conversation, I'm personally involved with one of the companies that we created in Europe, companies called InCooling. They are building cooling solutions for data centers. Uh, and uh, in, in a nutshell, their value proposition is they, they're building a cooling solution that will be able to, uh, to decrease the power consumption uh, of data centers while increasing the clock speed of chips, uh, which is a very nice value proposition. And uh, during the program, but also afterwards, we spent so much time trying to build an MVP for this product. Um, we looked at things like uh, landing pages and and uh, can we create some kind of 3D printed solution of this cooling uh, 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 hardware that they were trying to build. And if I look back on that on hindsight, this was such an utter waste of time. Uh, because for a data center operator, um, they are interested, of course, in the solution, but it's, it's very simple for them. Um, 
ultimately for us running a data center is almost like running a real estate business. So we have our capital expenditure, we have our operational expenditure. If you're if you have a solution, uh, show it to me. We will imp- do an implementation or a pilot implementation. We will measure a uh, certain ROI, like the, the indeed is our energy bill going down. We will look at things like reliability, uh, mean time between failure, uh, lots of other uh, variables that they will look at. And if you're able to, to achieve maybe a 5x improvement, we will buy. Uh, it's, it's as simple as that. And um, in order to be able to prove that, you need the product. Uh, you need to be able to to show that you have this type of reliability. You need uh, to be to be able to have a, a certain number of hours of testing done. Uh, uh, and before that, it's all conceptual. You can have uh, ten thousand validation conversations, but they will t- keep telling you the same thing, which is show me the product. Um, so uh, if I could do that again with that with that specific company. Um, okay, it's in the beginning. Do a bunch of validation to understand the requirements. Definitely. Then it's done. Lock yourself up in a room, build it as quickly as possible, um, and then go out. But don't waste time doing continuous validation. Uh, don't waste time trying to do monthly iteration loops. It's it's impossible. It's simply impossible. You're wasting everyone's time, including your customers, including your own. So boiling that down to whatever kind of program structure or support system, what actually do you, do you need to provide to researchers, to the founding team in that stage in order to help them to achieve this? When it's more about there is maybe not that much market uncertainty at this point, it's more like the technical risk that you are that you need to tackle. So to what extent does a research organization, a team of researcher need support at all in that phase? Yeah, so I would say, uh, of course, uh, back to the program, right? In the first months, it is all about the team, establishing the team dynamics. And there you can play an important role as a venture builder or operator. Then after that, <clears throat> uh, you need to explore different application areas. And of course, then validation is extremely important. So uh, let's say if you do this properly, you can do it in three to four months, have True. 20, 30, 40 meetings. And then at some moment, you start to have a, a good picture of what the market needs. And then... What I think needs to be done is you need to have a kind of a, 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 a kind of a red line meeting where you say, okay, this is the direction, this is our product roadmap, this is what we're what, what we're going to try to build. These are the specifications. Maybe check it once more. And then what you need to provide is essentially, uh, uh, let's say, uh, all the support structure to as quickly as possible speed up the product development process. Um, Engineers, uh, fab labs, uh, uh, whatever, high-tech manufacturing equipment, uh, uh, budget for prototyping, uh, help with supply chain, sourcing uh, certain components, whatever. That's what you need to do. Um, and, and don't bother them with all your bullshit on uh, having another conversation or building another MVP. Because that's actually how you will speed up the, the potential iteration loop of the venture. Yeah, and I think we both agree also that for this reason, you need more flexibility uh, in the funding amount and the duration of the programs because for different types of technologies, let's compare something like life sciences uh, against cybersecurity, the development cycles are super different. Uh, The amount of money you need in order to do your next kind of iteration um, is super different. And uh, probably, and as far as I understood, this is also the, the flexibility you're building into your programs so that you can really tailor the support to the specific needs and to the specific phase of the ventures you're working with. Yeah, exactly. So I think the the, the venture building program of the future is more, uh, uh, for deep tech again, The I do think you need a longer support structure. Even nine months is probably not enough. You might need one year or, or maybe even two years. Um, but it should be modulized. So you might have a module, business modeling, module finance, module prototyping, module valuation, whatever. Um, And uh, all those resources, knowledge, content should be available to founders at their disposal and at their discretion. Um, If you have good founders, they will make use of that when they need to. Um, But it doesn't work, I think, to indeed almost like a mold, right? Force those companies through some type of uh, overly designed process uh, and 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 have them do things that are not material towards accelerating the business. So I think the the future good venture building program should be run like that. Um, and then the, I, I think ultimately the good companies and the good founders will try because they will know what they need at the right moment in time. At least if the founders are good. 
Absolutely. And so given that we're already talking about the future of company builders or tech transfer or however you want to call it, what do you see as core challenges that also need to be solved so that we get more of those, these great technologies out of the labs and into ventures and build innovations from there? All right. So we talked already about the program. Uh, I think the other issues that need to be solved first capital, right? So the deep tech ventures need way more capital and it takes much more time to, to have an exit as a result of that for traditional VCs, there are no real incentives to invest in uh, deep tech companies. Uh, or maybe there are in case the IP is really special, uh, but especially early stage is very risky. So uh, the private sector is never going to solve that uh, because ultimately private sector thinks about uh, financial ROIs. Uh, so so um, the only way to solve that issue, I think, is when government steps in to create incentives that allow for deep tech investment. Um, especially early stage, uh, which, for example, can be some type of very good uh, matching mechanism where in case a VC invests in a deep tech venture, they might match it uh, without taking equity or taking a very small percentage of equity. Very um, lenient subsidies to allow the venture to, to survive on those subsidies for the first whatever X period of time. Um, that's one. Uh, I think the maybe other, in addition to that. Yeah, sorry, yeah. do you think do you think that corporates could also step in to provide the money that is needed to to scale those deep tech ventures? That would be great uh, because, of course, corporates when they are literally invested in a deep tech venture, they will also uh, at least likely they will start contributing other things like channels, like resources, like knowledge, like R and D which is what those ventures needs. And that's, of course, one of the uh, the thinking behind creating such an alliance structure. We want to try to get corporates to have a vested interest in the success of those deep tech ventures. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's one. Uh, I think the other thing is uh, you need a very particular type of founder for a deep tech venture. Um, you need people that have a very uh, sophisticated sense of technology, um, while still being entrepreneurial. Uh, that's hard, very hard. So I actually think that corporates could also actually be a, a pool of talent. Uh, there's lots of people in large corporations, especially technology-oriented corporations that have a long background in building technologies, long background in R&D. Uh, and if those people are also a little bit entrepreneurial, they could be a perfect breeding ground for potentially joining deep tech ventures as a founder. And then, of course, if that's the case, they will have good networks already in the corporates, which hopefully makes it easier to them um, potentially also make the corporate an investor or make the corporate more comfortable to actually invest money into the venture. Uh, so that's the, the second thing I think would be great if we could stimulate that more, um, uh, both on the talent side and then hopefully as a consequence also on the capital side. Okay, and, and do you see any challenges around the transition of IP from the research organization into the ventures? Because doing this deal, it's often a very tough negotiation, takes a very long time. Maybe deal structure is not perceived as fair from different parties, either the VC or the founders or the research organization. Do you see like uh, there's some improvement needed? Yes, definitely. Uh, I would even say this is one of my pet peeves. Um, I have over the years be grown quite frustrated about the fact that uh, it's so difficult to transfer intellectual property from research institutes into ventures. Um, if you ask me, the main reason behind that is the fact that, first of all, policies on how to do that are not standardized. So oftentimes, in certain cases, the IP belongs to the researcher. In certain cases, the IP belongs to the research institution. And because it's so diversified and so fragmented, it becomes very difficult for ventures to actually commercialize properly. So the first thing that policymakers should do, if you ask me, in my humble opinion, standardize this. Uh, and more importantly, make sure that the IP belongs to the research institute rather than the individual. Because if you uh, allow the individual to own the IP, you make um, it much more difficult to do the negotiation. So if you standardize the IP ownership and you give it to research institutes, and at the same time, you develop a framework where uh, in advance, it's clear how IP transfer works. Uh, for example, uh, there can be an equity component in that, there can be a licensing component in that, but the upper and the lower bounds, both of the equity as well as the licensing components should already be known. So if I'm a potential entrepreneur, I know that if I engage with institution X, 
I have 100 IPs lying on the shelf. There's two ways to commercialize this IP, and there's always an upper and lower bound for how I can do that. Um, if IP commercialization would be done like this, I think it would be much, much, much easier um, and therefore much more successful because ultimately venture creation is also about just simply creating the quantity of ventures. Uh, so you want to create as many ventures as possible. You want to commercialize as much IP as possible so, so that hopefully you have some success cases. Um, and then maybe the, um, uh, the final thing to say on this is that oftentimes the KPIs of research institutes or even researchers, uh, I would argue they're often not set properly. Um, if you want to maximize the likelihood that IP is commercialized, just create an, uh, a KPI for researchers and research institutes where the most important thing is the number of IP that has been commercialized. So no targets, no milestones, no KPIs on revenue, no milestones on profit. Leave that to the companies. Just a KPI on number of uh, IP that's being commercialized. Uh, I believe if you make those changes, um, this will... Uh, hopefully make the entire ecosystem work much better. And I've been saying this for years, uh, but I know this is an uphill battle and it's difficult. Uh, but still, that would be my ideal solution to this to this question. Well, this very radical proposal, uh, this is for those people who are policymakers in the audience, and maybe uh, one could have some discussions around that. But I, I definitely see your point. Um, we are both part of the Innovation Time Sustainability Alliance because we both think that deep tech can contribute to the way or to, to solving the big challenges that we have as humanity, especially also climate change. What do you think? What are the big technologies that will, that will contribute to that and, and help us to, to tackle the SDGs and address them? Yeah, I think this is, of course, a very big question. Um, I, to be clear, I don't think deep tech is the one solution to solve uh, or to tackle sustainability challenges. Uh, there's many other um, uh, ways of doing that. So the role of government is important. Uh, it's not just deep tech. However, indeed, I do think there's definitely a correlation between research-driven innovation or science-based innovation and their impact on society. So where I think specifically science-based innovation or deep tech can play a role is, for example, uh, when we talk specifically about climate change. Uh, if we want to tackle climate change, we have to make sure that we transition uh, away from fossil fuels and towards more renewables. That means a, a fundamental innovation is necessary on what type of fuel we use, on the way we fly, on um, the way we move ourselves uh, in, in areas such as automotive, um, in things like a direct carbon uh, CO2 capture from the air. Uh, so I think that's where deep tech can play a role in, in, the, in climate change, also in things like agriculture. Uh, where lots of improvement can be made in terms of yields, the way we utilize our land. Um, but of course, part of the sustainability or the SDG agenda is also around things like education, uh, equality of opportunities for women. And maybe that deep tech plays a less important role. So it depends a little bit on which specific uh, United Nations development goal we're talking about. Um, I think there's a couple where deep tech uh, really can play an important role and has to play an important role. And there's others where it might come from uh, not so deep tech, uh, still innovation, uh, but more, maybe more platform software-based businesses. Yeah. So thank you very much for, for these insights. And we share this belief that deep tech is the lever to solving many of those challenges. And so um, it, it's it's good to have people like you, uh, although deep tech venturing and supporting these kind of startups is maybe more maybe not more difficult, but at least more complex to some extent, more stakeholders involved. It's more risky and stuff like that, but you're still motivated to work at this intersection and help people to, to get their technologies off the ground and build those ventures. So um, thank you for the chat. Thank you for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. All right, Thorsten. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and about deep tech, you're right. Um, it is definitely a difficult, complex, very high risk area to play in. Um, it's much more difficult to make the exits. Um, it's much more difficult to help the ventures to grow, but it's meaningful. Um, you're really bringing technologies to the market that can have a real impact on, on society and on people. And to quote uh, Peter Thiel, a famous investor from Silicon Valley, who once said, we wanted flying cars and instead we got 140 signs referring to Twitter. Um, we need to make sure that we do more meaningful innovation. Um, so uh, I definitely also do this out of a passion for just trying to do something meaningful with my time and contributing a little, little bit to society. So um, even though it's harder, um, it's still fun. 
uh, but more importantly, it's, it's actually contributing a little bit uh, to uh, the big challenges that we have to solve all together. Uh, so thanks again. Looking forward to, uh, to listening to this, but of course, also all the podcasts you're going to be recording in the future. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again. Have a great time. Have a great day. See you soon. Bye, Luke.